Stella made a beat, so it's go time. Welcome back to another edition of the Core Four. The Core Four is a podcast under SB Nation's Grizzly Bear Blues Podcast Network. Find it on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Megaphone, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Grizzly Bear Blues is also a blog under SB Nation. Find them on the web at grizzlybearblues.com or on Twitter at SBN Grizzlies. I'm your host, Parker Fleming. And with me is none other than Nathan, the champion, Chester. Nate, how's it going? It's going great, man. I felt like a champion last night watching the Grizzlies win in San Antonio, didn't you? We do it for the clicks, man. We do it for the clicks. And um, you can call yourself a blog boy, and you definitely are. You made a very good analytical piece on John Moran. I think it was last week around this time, made best of SB Nation, which was great. Um, But I think the proper term for you is blog boy boomer because only boomers record things in 2019, man. That's just the way it works. I don't want to have to call you that. I don't want to. But the facts dictate that I have to. So, I'm going to say it, Parker. Okay, Boomer. I mean, it happens. If I have to be a Boomer and record games to better myself, both as a blogger and a podcaster, but also just a basketball mind, I'll accept it just this once. You do what you have to do, and I respect that. We both respect that. So at least you're embracing it, and that's the important thing. But while we're on the topic, since you did delectfully decided to go back and record the game, I do want to talk about the game from last night. So there's a lot to talk about. Um, Jaron is continuing his bounce back from a very rough start of the season. And Dylan had a great game last night. But there's one thing in particular that I want to talk about, and it's Taylor Jenkins to start off with. Now, I've had some frustrations with uh, Jenkins a little bit some this year because the team should be based entirely around John Morant and Jaron Jackson. And John Morant has flourished so far this year, but Jaron has kind of fallen by the wayside, not getting the touches that he needed. And I think in my article, I think it was from last week, talking about how much he gets the ball, uh, Jaron had the fourth – uh, Jaron's usage was fourth in the starting lineup, and I just didn't think that was acceptable. But Jaron is starting to find a stride, which we'll get to here in a moment. And Jenkins, outside of Jaron, has exceeded my wildest expectations. What? I'm shocked. This is the first time I've heard you say this. Like, go on, please. I've never heard you say anything about Taylor Jenkins exceeding your expectations because you do have the negative Nate brand. And I have not seen many compliments on Coach Jenkins. 
I've generally have kind of held back because it's been so early in the season. I just want I just wanted to see how things would play out over the first ten or so games. Over ten games into the season, the Grizzlies are top ten in assists. Jenkins said he wanted to come in and play pace and space with excellent ball movement. They're top ten in assists, even though they're in the bottom ten of the league in converting open shots. It wasn't much of a secret the Grizzlies were going to struggle to shoot the ball coming into this season, but it's encouraging to know that they're playing the right way. Parker, you know how many assists the Grizzlies had last night against San Antonio? Mm-mm. 32. I love it. When in recent history do you remember the Grizzlies having 30 assists in a game? Because I don't have it in front of me to be able to say it's never happened. I'm sure it has at some point, but it was definitely a rarity and certainly not the not the norm. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't even just because like the offense sucked or anything. The thing with the Grizzlies offense in the past was because it relied on a lot of post play. Like Zach Randolph and Mark Gasol were essentially assist killers because they would take five, six, seven, eight seconds to make their play, or they'll take three or four dribbles. Granted, Mark Gasol would end up sometimes passing out of the post, but at the end of the day, most of the time when those two guys were scoring, nobody was benefiting off an assist. So this is a new development that I actually really love. Mm hmm. And Jenkins said he wanted to get away from that, and that's something that coaches have wanted to do for years, the Grizzlies. <sighs> Starting with David Fisdale, who you and I certainly do not have a high opinion of at this point. And Fisdale, I don't even really want to hear excuses for him. Um, when you get fired two times in three years, he kind of speaks for himself, like he's about to get fired for the New York Knicks. And um, I don't even want to hear the excuse that the Knicks are a dumpster fire of an organization and what can you expect because he chose to coach there when multiple other jobs are available. But that's besides the point. Fisdale wanted the Grizzlies to play more modern, to play pace and space, and they kind of did for a little while. And there were some fruits of the labor. Marcus All was shooting threes. Conley had a career year in 2016-2017. But for the most part, they regressed back to what they were, pounding the ball into Marcus All and Zach Randolph, and they were generally comfortable at playing at one of the slowest paces in the league. J.B. Bickerstaff wanted to do that, and really, for the most part, even without Zach Randolph, the Grizzlies still played at one of the slowest paces in the league. Now, maybe it was just having Mike Conley and Marcus Gasol. They are who they are, and they're going to play the way they're going to play, but to have Jenkins come in his first year and in 10 games, and again, having John Morant, who pushes the pace at every opportunity as your point guard, definitely helps. But to see him come in and do exactly what he said he was going to do makes me feel, even 10 10 games in, that they made the right hire. Absolutely. And I'm looking at some stats right now on their passing. They are in the top 10 in the league in passes made. And like you said, they're also top 10 in assists. They're actually third in assists at 26.4. And in, in potential assists, they're in the top half of the league, hovering around like 12 and 13. So like you said, he's doing what he said he was going to do and rely on pace and space and moving the ball. And I even, I've talked to him in some scrums and I've heard him in scrums say that he wants to have as many playmakers on the floor as, as possible. Because I was asking him for a later feature, like why does he play 
Kyle Anderson and Brandon Clark at the four and five, even though they're not traditional fives or big men per se. I just asked him what they have that kind of offsets the absence of one. And he just said playmakers and it, they're benefiting off of it. Like they're moving the basketball. And one thing I really like too, that the Grizzlies have never had is they're having wings, like get like pretty good assist numbers, like hovering around like three and four. Marco Gugrich recently has had a few outings with three or four assists. Dylan Brooks, when he's not on his stuff, he can move the ball as well. Jay Crowder's averaging around three assists a game. And in Kyle Anderson, he's averaging around two or three assists as well. I like seeing everybody not just get their share of the offense, but they're also distributing the wealth as well. Yeah, they really are, and they're doing such a fantastic job of it. And something that I really liked last night was to see it come together on both ends. And, you know, offensively, like you said, they're third in assists. They're doing everything that Jenkins wants them to do on offense. And not even from a statistical perspective, just by the eye test, you could have watched them, and the game is so clean. It is so crisp. The shooting isn't great. There isn't many elite. There isn't really an elite score or Per se on this team and that'll cause the offense to flounder at times but they're getting the shots that they want to take and in two or three years from now when Anthony Edwards or Cole Anthony is next to John Morant and he's not having to rely on Dylan Brooks and Marco Goodrich no disrespect to them it just is what it is you'll really start to see the fruits of the labor that Jenkins has put in into making the Grizzlies play that want to play. But defensively, last night was by far the best defensive performance I've seen from the Grizzlies so far this year. The Spurs still shot well. They still scored 109 points. But in the third quarter, that was some of the best defensive rotations that you will ever see from an NBA team. And to see it coming from a group of guys that are so young and still growing and developing was so encouraging because it was kind of a question mark for me about Jenkins. Like, I like what I've seen offensively so far. They're playing the way he wants them to play. But let's say once they once we get past the point of expectations where it's beyond just growing and developing. It's time to make the playoffs. It's time to win in the playoffs. Can Jenkins establish a defensive identity? They'll be beneficial to them in doing that. And the Grizzlies are 24th in defensive efficiency. That's not great. Now, some of that is skewed by the Dallas Mavericks game, in which they gave up 138 points. And Jenkins was experimenting with some zone defense that game. But they're playing the right way. Like The results are not always there like they are on offense. It's the same way on defense. They're playing the right way, and I was very encouraged by last time. Absolutely. One thing I really saw defensively that they did a great job on was they were doing really well on closing out on shooters, and primarily there was just one play where they forced a turnover off of it, and I think something happened where Jay Crowder ended up on the ground by underneath the basket, and he got up and closed out on Derek White and prevented Derek White from shooting an open three. And it's kind of just like threw the Spurs out for a loop because from there, Dylan Brooks was able to rotate it over to the corner, the right corner, where they made that next pass. And they just made life difficult for the Spurs. And it was a really nice defensive play. Like if you like that kind of basketball, that's like what you teach. Yeah, for sure. And it's not about the wins and the losses. It, it really isn't. And that's something I've had to tell myself over and over again when 
whenever I've gotten frustrated over Jaron's fouling or John Morant's turnovers or just the general play of the team at times, you got to remember that it's just not about that at the end of the day. But to see it come together in a win is always a good feeling. And that was something good to see from last night. But also from last night, and this has been a trend over the last couple of games, has been Jaron Jackson fondly looking like the player that he was last year. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One thing I saw that kind of got him going, and we always saw that with like Zach Randolph or even a little bit some with Jaron last year, is Jenkins made it a priority to get him into the post and just get him going early, get him engaged in the game early. And then from there, he just like sent his games to the outside. I know he connected, I think, on two post-ups quick and then came out, hit a three-pointer. And then he had that nice pull-up three to end the half. And that's like the kind of stuff that you're dreaming about with Jaron Jackson Jr. is not even just the ability to bang down low and finish in the post, but he's also making plays off the perimeter. And I think that's the whole premise and idea of Jaron Jackson in this pace and space offense. And while we're on that subject too, the big thing that also they've kind of struggled with is getting Jonas Valanciunas involved in the offense because he's not getting nearly as many touches as he was in JB's system. But last night he really got going and like Jaron, they got him going in the post. You know, Jakob Pertle on him and LaMarcus Aldridge. They're not... I mean, no matter what the analytics say, they're not the best post defenders out there, and Jonas was able to feast. And so it was really nice to see not just one of them having a good game, but both of them having a good game at the same time. I think it was to uh, Mike Wallace before the season began. He was talking to Jaron Jackson, and you were there, so you might have heard it, but I think Jaron said, we want to have the best front court in the NBA. And obviously with Jonas out there, it's never going to be the most quote-unquote modern front court there is. But there's something about Jaron in particular that I think we underrate is that we've noticed his um, footwork and low post skills were well above expectations coming into last year. But as far he's stronger than he looks, I think his athletic abilities and talents are a little bit underrated in our eyes. And as far as him having off games like he did at the beginning of this year, there were two reasons for that. Um, one is foul trouble. If you can't stay on the court, you can't play well, obviously. And two is that when he was on the court, he couldn't find a rhythm and he couldn't find a rhythm partially because of foul trouble. And also because the Grizzlies were just not doing a good job of feeding him the ball in the post and just getting him the ball in general. But when you give the ball to him, whether it's the down screen that Dylan Brooks will set to get him down to the low block or a down screen that Jonas will set for him to get him positioned on the low block, he is borderline impossible to stop going to his left hand once he gets within five, six feet of the basket. Now, whether it's because of his post moves and footwork, that's definitely beneficial to him. But how many times have we seen over the last couple of games that he'll just catch it, take two, take one or two dribbles with the left hand and turn around to the left hook shot? And all these NBA players like LaMarcus Aldridge and Yanka Pertle, they've all watched film. They know what he's going to go to, and they still can't stop it. So I have some analysis for you. It's very, very deep analysis. When you give the best player on your team the ball, he's going to produce more often than not. 
Very mind-blowing, I know. Very incomprehensible. But it's the truth for the Memphis Grizzlies. And I don't expect Jaron to lose any steam from the way he's playing because I think Jenkins is learning how to properly utilize him in the offense. And when Jaron is being effective and Jaron is scoring efficiently in the post, which is then helping him find the rhythm to be able to make shots from the perimeter and make plays from the perimeter – it opens up things for Jonas. It opens up him to be able to play better because uh, the Spurs in the second half started bringing some light double teams towards Jaron in the post, and it opens up things for Jonas that low. Can the Grizzlies have the best front court in the NBA? I don't know about that. Uh, Jaron is still just 20 years old. Um, Jonas can very much be a hold defensively at times. But they look great together against San Antonio, and I expect them to look very great together here in the future. I do have a question, actually. When you think it in terms of one through four in front courts, where would Jaron, Jonas, Brandon Clark, and Kyle Anderson rate among the league in like the best four for front court units? I need, I need to pull up NBA teams in front of me to even think about that because we put so much emphasis on backcourts and guard play in the NBA nowadays that we don't even really consider that now. And by frontcourt, I don't I don't really count the three because they've kind of just been lumped into a backcourt as well because the position at times is becoming more playmaker-oriented. Like theoretically, Luka Doncic is a three. Theoretically, LeBron's a three. <sighs> Who else? Giannis has switched more to a four. Kawhi's at the three. Like you get you get my point. Like they're it's become more of a perimeter oriented position to where I don't count that really in the front court. So like when you think about four and five, this is a great topic for the next score four after load management. Um but yeah. it's something definitely to monitor. I think they had the one of the higher upsides, of course, of any front court. Bro, I'm honestly going down all the teams in the NBA here. And the only team that's really just jumping out at me saying like they definitely have a better front court than the Grizzlies is the Los Angeles Lakers. And even that is just mainly because of Anthony Davis, because he's a transcendent talent and JaVale McGee playing 20, 25 minutes a game. He's a phenomenal rim protector. Um, And once Kyle Kuzma finds his sea legs and starts to look like the player he has been the last two years, I think you could probably give them Wait, the number. You forgot one other guy. Who did I forget? Former Memphis Grizzly Dwight Howard. Oh, I did. Memphis Grizzly legend Dwight Howard, you mean? Yes. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Dwight definitely fits right in there. Dwight is a friend, six-man-of-the-year candidate right now. This combination of rim protection and rebounding that he's been bringing off the bench, and I He's probably top five in the league in field goal percentage, too, which is about what he did during his time at Orlando. And let's see. Really, I'm going down the list, and really the Lakers, the only team that jumps out to me that clearly have a better front court than the Grizzlies. And you know what that tells me? What? Uh <laughs> Front courts really are becoming a thing of the past, and there's probably no better example of that than the Grizzlies have the first or second best front court in the league and are probably not going to win more than 25 games this year. Bingo. And so we're going to be right back, but we'll come back to you on the other side. All right, so you wanted to talk about Dylan Brooks. 
I know he's kind of a, would you say he's kind of a, a divisive topic in like NBA or not NBA, but Grizzly Twitter because there's like a side that's like, oh, he's trash, whatever. But like, there's also a side where it's like, oh, like he's actually like a pretty good shooting guard. Like granted, he may not be a starting caliber shooting guard, but he could definitely be a rotation player on the next great Grizzlies team. He's just kind of, there's like a misconception about him. I think both sides, I don't know. I'm writing about this technically by the time this records, it's going to be today, but I don't know. What do you think? I think the, you see, I told you a couple of days ago that I've just kind of been indifferent on him. Um, I think some of the disconnect is just that Dylan was one of the only good rookies the Grizzlies had had in years back in 2017. So when he came in and looked very good, I believe he scored 38 points the final game of the season of his rookie year, um, people were very quick to hop on him, including the marketing department, and saying Dylan is a key building block for the future. Dylan is going to be a future star for this franchise and you saw glimpses of it early last year before he got hurt, and you're seeing it now, that's just not what Dylan is. He just isn't. That's never what he's going to be. Um, Can Dylan be a good rotation player on a good team for years to come? Yes, he can be. I think the biggest frustration with him just comes down to consistency. Um, He had, I believe, 21 points last night against San Antonio. Yeah, that's what he had. And he looked great. He looked he looked like everything that you could find ideally in a starting shooting guard next to John Moran, a guy who can make plays on the perimeter for others. He had three assists to go along with 21 points last night. And he was also um, just shooting the ball fantastically well. He was getting into the mid-range and making shots, and he was hitting threes. But he doesn't do that on a consistent basis. He had six combined points in the last two games before the San Antonio game. And a concern that you had about him back in preseason was if his shot is not going in, what does he provide? And he's been a lot better in that area, especially on the defensive end of the court. I think some would like to paint the narrative that he's not so good defensively. He's a physical defender. It's why he's right there with Jaron and the top two on the team in fouls. But he generally does a very good job of fighting over screens and staying with his man. And for a guy who can score from all three levels on the court and can be a physical defender who doesn't necessarily need to be guarding the other team's best player every night, like he's been doing at times to the Grizzlies, but he can be a solid, capable defender, there is a place for him going forward. The simple matter is just finding how how to be consistent offensively. Absolutely. And one thing... Like what you just mentioned, his defense, it's something I've really monitored and I'm definitely going to try to gain more insight on this as well, is there is that conception of Dylan Brooks that he's not a good defender and the analytics also kind of suggest he's not that good of a defender also. But I saw, I hear it with Jenkins, I hear it with JB, I even heard it with Brevin Knight the other night on on broadcast and that said Dylan Brooks is usually tasked with guarding the opposing team's best guy and granted that has to say something about his quality of defense and even though the analytics don't back it up I would love to hear about why he's in that spot and 
he's also erased my doubts on what he provides aside from scoring the basketball. He's averaging a career high 3.9 rebounds and two assists per game, which that's close to what you want out of him, especially since he's technically the fourth or fifth option or should be the fourth or fifth option in the starting lineup. But my big concern with Dylan that I'm actually going to be writing about is he's taking way too many contested mid-range jumpers and not enough three-pointers when he's honestly probably the best shooter on the team. So I'm looking at his game log right now, and in the one, two, three games he shot above 50% or more from three, he's taken six three-point attempts, four three-point attempts, and seven three-point attempts in each of those games. So I feel like... If you're hovering around that 35 to 40% from three, and actually before last weekend, he was at 45%. If you're shooting at that clip, you need to be shooting threes at least like seven times a game. Because at that point, because he knows where to pick his spots on the court, he'll be able to attack those closeouts because the film will suggest, hey, Dylan Brooks, he shoots a lot of threes and he can make them too. I need to close out. And once they close out, that's going to open up so many more opportunities for him, not just to score, but to make plays off the dribble for others. And in turn, it's going to kind of enhance that pace and space offense a little more. And I think him as a playmaker has just really been encouraging too. Um, he's averaging two assists a game. He averaged 1.6 assists during his rookie season. Uh, but something that I like, just 1.2 turnovers per game. It's nearly a two-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio for a guy that we literally, as early as, as recently as preseason, we're seeing as this tunnel vision gunner who doesn't bring anything to your basketball team other than score. You're starting shooting guard having a two-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio. That's good. That's something you can build around going forward, and that's something you can build into making him a more functional secondary playmaker over the next few years. Do I think Dylan Brooks will ever be the starting shooting guard on the next great Grizzlies team? Probably not. The Grizzlies will probably look to the NBA draft this coming year to help address that problem, whether it's through Anthony Edwards, Isaiah Joe, or whoever else suits their fancy. But I've had confidence some of these last 10 games. I've had my doubts. I've been indifferent towards Dylan, and there's been plenty of reasons to be frustrated with him, especially in his shot selection. He's been suffering from the Andrew Wiggins disease. But even Andrew Wiggins has been healed from the Andrew Wiggins disease this year, and I believe that Dylan Brooks can be too. And once he does, he will undoubtedly be a key rotation player for the Grizzlies for years to come. Absolutely. And Nate, to close the show, and actually we've done a good job with this. We've tried to keep this podcast, the pro premise of it was to hit four things in a podcast in around 30 minutes or so. And we're at this fourth thing, and it's something you've really want to talk about, something near and dear to all of our hearts, and that is the James Wiseman situation. What is there really to say besides, like, the NCAA sucks? I feel like we have to talk about it because Memphis and Oregon are playing in an hour and 15 minutes and James Wiseman will be on the court. All I can say is, without being too explicit, is it's about time. Um, We've all had our frustrations, our resentments, not over only the way how the NCAA has treated Memphis in the past, but how the NCAA has dealt with so many universities in an arbitrary and capricious manner. Like, 
Um, <laughs> uh, James Wiseman's lawyer, Leslie Ballin, uh, said a couple of days ago, but it's about time. And I'm glad that it's Penny Hardaway. It's the Memphis Tigers who are finally being the ones who have the courage and the conviction to stand up to a bully. And that's what the NCAA has been for decades now. The NCAA does not care about student athletes. They do not care about the kids who many of which many of which bring the most revenue to the NCA or minority kids who have very little, who could desperately use the money that could come from using their image and likeness. But the NCA doesn't care about that. The NCA cares about their bottom line and making sure that those who support their bottom line don't take any part and share in that revenue that is created. So I'm glad that Memphis is standing up to them. Okay, it's about time. Yep. There are two things I would love to happen with all this crap that's gone on one James Wiseman just should just dismiss from Memphis just leave go sign with the hustle all right that'd be pretty cool give Memphis fans what they want before he becomes a Memphis Grizzly and just the rest is history but two one thing I would just love to happen is I would just wish there's one recruiting class before this one and done things over that says like a top 50 recruiting class like comes in they're like you know what i the ncaa is whack like they don't care about us they care about their money and they don't let us be who we are let's go somewhere else and they spread out amongst overseas play whether it's in new zealand australia europe china wherever or they go to the g league and start building a legitimate case for abolishing the one and done rule and just having that third round to where teams could select high school prospects to stash away in their G league for a year before they join them on the main roster for the next season. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And um, it may take something that drastic to create real change because as courageous and as principled as Memphis to stand might be now, Memphis may not win this case, and that's a reality that everyone has to be aware of. And the NCAA may eventually win this case, whether it's a year or 18 months from now, and it's all put to bed. And the NCAA thinks we're still in control. We still won. Everything is good. Everybody calm down. It may take something as drastic as a group of top recruits who, again, Many of these are minority kids who are coming from impoverished backgrounds who even a G League contract where you're only making between thirty five and fifty thousand a year could be hugely beneficial to them and their families. Even that group saying, We're going to go do this because you do not care for us, you do not care for our well being, you do not care for our future, you only care about your bottom line, and you're gonna profit off of our backs off of our labor to do that without giving any of it back to us. And that group saying, we're not going to be a part of it. It may take something like that for the NCAA to finally have its power toppled. But until that happens, we'll see. Absolutely. And so Nate, we're about time to wrap up, but do you have anything left before we close? I really don't. I'm excited to watch the Memphis-Oregon game here tonight. I'm excited the Grizzlies won last night. It's just a great time to be a Memphis sports fan. If you if you dropped your affiliation with Ole Miss into Ole Miss football, you'd probably get to know it in football. You're just stuck on the basketball side right now, Parker, but that's okay. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Um, I guess all I got to say is go Tigers for tonight. And then also as this podcast is recorded, the Grizzlies will be taking on the Charlotte Hornets, looking to avenge that 20-point blowout in preseason. (laughs) Devontae Graham versus John Morant. You don't want to miss it. Absolutely. And so, Nate, tell the people where they can find you and your work. I'm going to get it right this time. You can find me on Twitter at NathanChester24, and you can find all my Grizzlies-related content at grizzlybearblues.com. And be on the lookout for some more things in the future. Parker, plug your stuff. Yes, sir. You can find me on Twitter at Paca underscore Flocka. Read my work at grizzlybearblues.com. As this podcast is posted, I will have a nice piece on Dylan Brooks. And... Follow the podcast on Twitter at the core four podcast with the number four, not the word for follow Grizzly Bear Blues on Twitter at SB and Grizzlies like subscribe, follow whatever it does for Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Megaphone or wherever you're listening to this podcast. 